the Pilot TV podcast this week, we are searching for cocaine during Freshers' Week in Jerk on BBC Three, setting ourselves up as the Skip Police with King Gary on BBC One, and yes, giving in to all things dun-dun, when two of Terry's favourite things, the Mafia and police procedurals, combine for the latest entry in her most beloved of franchises, Law & Order Organised Crime. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that feels like it's hardly been away, given that we recorded last week's episode on Monday morning, and we're now recording this one on Thursday, so we've literally only been away from each other for three days. And you'd think we'd have almost nothing to talk about, except for the fact that Netflix dropped a bombshell the other day, revealing that season two of Fate the Wink Saga has begun production, and we will now spend the next hour or so breaking down that footage frame by frame. But before we get our winks on, I should introduce my two co-conspirators, the Benson and Stabler of modern TV journalism, Boyd Hilton and Terry White. How are we both? Pretty good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to you. I mean, you're joking about that minute by minute, second by second breakdown, are you? Absolutely okay, not. I mean, <laughs> seasoned listeners will understand. Yes, yes. Did you did you see the Winx footage? Were you blown away? Did it I saw something, make your I, afternoon? I saw something to do with the Winx, but that was, I left it there. I mean, to be fair, it was actually fairly underwhelming. It's just them, them sort of wandering around. It's almost like a TikTok video, like yeah. them just like, oh, look, we're recording. Hello. And wasn't there some entire fan event surrounding The Witcher? Uh, well, there was, there was, yeah, the WitcherCon. WitcherCon right. happened. Did you go to that? Did you attend that? So lots of Witcher. No, I would. I did not go to WitcherCon. It can be said. Lazy. I know. Also, the footage. Well, we'll get into it in the new section. But footage from the new Witcher animated series was released. But we'll wait for Vesemir's origin story to the news section. All things in due time, because we begin this podcast as is our tradition with uh, what we've been watching and what I want to know is how much of The Leftovers has Terry watched this week? Well, so hang on. So we last, as you rightly pointed out, we last met on Monday. It is now Thursday, so what have I watched for the last three days? Uh, Well, bearing in mind, uh, I worked one night until 2am and two nights till 1am. I haven't watched any television whatsoever. Wow. Wow. This is going to be a short segment, isn't it? It really is. (laughs) Boydy, have you watched any TV in the oh, past yeah, couple of loads. days? Yeah, loads. Um, <laughs> I've watched more episodes of uh, The Leftovers. Yeah, because I kind of went, I, I stopped halfway through season one and then I went to season two to remind myself. Because when I was telling, talking last week about how the new theme tune and the new slightly more upbeat mm. tone and the weird, you talking about the weird opening of season two, <laughs> which goes back to like prehistoric times or whatever. I wouldn't tell, because I haven't rewatched that really, I don't think, since it went out. So, and it is absolutely spectacularly, fantastically demented television. And I forgot quite how deranged it was and how he, and, and it is, I think it stands alone. I don't think there's anything like it. There's kind of things that are a bit like it, but not really. I think that could be one of its greatest achievements is there really isn't anything to compare it to. Yeah, no, I agree Just with you. in terms of what it's about and how it's, how it's made and kind of the thing that Terry was alluding to right from the beginning, which is that you're plunged into things. That's kind of, get, get, carries on being one of its main narrative devices, being plunged into stuff that, that eventually over time you slowly begin to understand what the fuck's going on. But it really works well for this particular story. It works brilliantly. In fact, right up until the, mm. and so I can, now I'm fully, I'm fully re-engaged with it and I'm doing a kind of U-style rewatch and I think I'm going to carry on with the, all of season two and season three because I remember the, the finale being pretty incredible as well. So, um, yeah, I'm fully engaged with the leftovers. A couple of non-leftovers things. Baptiste, I'm carrying I'm up to episode three of that still. Yes, Terry's face. <laughs> Do you, you watched the first episode then. So I should say, actually, on Monday, I had an hour's break from work while I fed my son and we watched Baptiste while I did it. Right. And <laughs> OMG, I had to put a household ban. We watched the first episode 
I just couldn't make time to watch the second and I put a household ban on any more Baptiste being watched without me. And I, yeah. but there is a time jump thing that I, when I was watching it, Boyd, I was wondering if that irritated you. But I think it's done so brilliantly here as a narrative device. And Fiona Shaw, I mean... Oh. Yeah. What is that to say? Sure. And she just has more and more extraordinary scenes to do as it goes on, like in episodes, as, it, as, as the series goes on. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I fully embrace the time jump because the way the, the, these guys do the time jump is they, they know what they're doing. They, they're, what, their use of time is the whole, is almost the whole narrative drive of it. So, and it's flashing between two timelines particularly. And it works fantastically well. Yeah, it, it's a superb series so far. And it's one of those things where you're going to, you, you just hope and pray they've got an ending because it's all about the ending. Can you, can you bring off the ending? But they've done it before i think so um yeah but she oh my god fiona Shaw, pencil her in pencil her in for baftas and stuff she is phenomenal yeah. always phenomenal so there's that i should point yes. out i got i got bollocked by listeners oh yeah omg after last week's podcast for not calling you out boyd for yeah. saying omg yeah. and now terry has done yeah. it as well yeah. and look guys guys neither of you are gen zedders there is absolutely no excuse for this shit so let's cut this out right now guys 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 guys, guys. i think you... us saying omg is less annoying than you going guys guys that's what i was just gonna say you managed to be more <laughs> oh irritating just saying guys guys <laughs> Yeah. Then either yeah. me, then me and Boyd combined say no MG. Yeah, and we don't say is it though as well in that way that you do. Isn't it though? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, fair enough. So Baptiste and what? And I think you should leave with Tim Robbins, which is this Netflix sketch show, which is just like little 15, 20 minute episodes of high level comedic extremism. <laughs> That's the way I'm going to put it. it. You you will despise the show, James, because the main guy in it. He is he is kind of irritating, and that's kind of the whole point of it. So he himself has an irritating persona, and he puts himself in the middle of quite irritating sketches that kind of touch upon various aspects of modern life, like TV and shopping centres and all kinds of things. But it is really clever, and you're going to love this. Fake or Fortune is back this week, which is the show hosted by Fiona Bruce with posh art guy Philip Mould where people find art objects like in their attic and stuff and then they try and work out whether they're real or not whether they really were or whether they're fake and the first one I always love it it's like a proper TV true life detective story rather than art the first one is about a Henry Moore sculpture that someone stumbles across when they're doing the gardening and has been used as a metal doorstop but might just be a sculpture by Henry Moore the greatest sculptor of recent centuries and it is phenomenal tv can, can i can I ask a henry moore related question yes now understand that i know an awful lot about dune and the reason i say this is just show that i'm not completely without culture so i don't know who henry moore is and i've never heard of him because obviously you've, ne because you've never heard of henry moore hold on hold boyd, on boyd has he been in star trek no he hasn't <laughs> let's move on now i was i was on a date once and we walked along and there was a sculpture and the person who i was with she said she said oh it's a sculpture she said i bet that's by henry moore and i was blown away that that's the person who's done the sculpture but i'm now coming to realise that maybe that wasn't some incredible bit of art knowledge and it was just like, you know, throw a stick and you'll hit a sculpture by Henry Moore. Is that, or is that not the case? <laughs> Hang on. How does your date, how are you trying to position it that your date's the one who comes out of this story badly? Yeah, There's I know. only one person who comes out of this story badly and it's you and yet you're still sneering at your date and presuming she's as stupid as you are. 
I was not sneering, nor was I saying she was stupid. I was incredibly you're impressed with the knowledge. You're a cultural abyss. And you I are may... a cultural abyss. <laughs> and just because you're a cultural abyss doesn't mean everybody else is a cultural abyss and therefore, you know, throwing a stick at a wall or whatever it was you described <laughs> oh. it as instead of, you know, just having knowledge about art that they can apply in real-world conversations. <laughs> I mean, look, I can recite the Bene Gesserit Litany Against Fear, so, you know... I'm not entirely without knowledge. I mean, you're not in, just the worst. Yeah, I mean, in answer to your question though, he, Henry Moore does have very, a very specific, quite identifiable style for a lot of his. Especially, he did a lot of bronze sculptures, which were which yes. were kind of half abstract, half figurative. So they were often like looked a mm. bit like often women's bodies, if you like, but, but very abstracted. So yes, I think this was one of those. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, as in it was a big chunk of metal in the middle of a field. Really really have you heard of Pablo Picasso? <laughs> sure, sure, he was in Pearl Jam, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, you're even more, to use the phrase that we had to use recently, you're even more siloed than I ever realised. I didn't know that you, um, like, banished all knowledge of other art, art worlds and creative pursuits apart from fucking nerdy films. I didn't I know that. Said, I would quite like to know more about art than I currently do, which is, you know, obviously nothing. So, uh, you know... May that I would, recommend that would... uh, Russell Tovey and Robert Diamant's book? Mm. Um, you know, I probably should Talk listen art. to their podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll listen I to really podcast. Should. Yeah, because I'm yeah. I, I know absolutely nothing about art at all. Oh God, okay, fine. But while we're on the subject of art, something that is art and that I have seen is Ted Lasso, and I have watched <laughs> the first eight episodes of Ted Lasso because they've now dropped eight in the little what I call the little crack vial that is the Apple Screeners website, where they're sort of doling out episodes of Ted Lasso. Incidentally, what's fascinating about these episodes is not just that Ted Lasso is life, uh, not football, but Ted Lasso. It's that most of the official effects aren't done. And it's amazing, fascinating how much of a show, even like Ted Lasso, is visual effects. Everything from the views outside of the windows, obviously the football games, all of the crowds and stadiums, but like the football matches are filmed in multiple locations. You know, you can tell because different parts of the game, they're filmed in different fields and they're often literally just fields with kind of green screen edgings and they put in the stadium and like, fair play to them. You would never fucking know watching it. It's, it's yeah, I found it quite uh, I, I know what you mean. I, yeah, because I, I did the same. I, and and it, it is astonishingly hard to get to film football matches, particularly Premier League, like top level football matches or well, that fact they're not in the Premier League but you know what I mean top, fairly top football matches convincingly and that's mm. why I think it is so complicated because they have to get enough crowd to make it look real they have to get the play done by actors convincingly mm. on pitches that look convincing it is fucking complicated and you can really tell if you're watching it without the without the CGI finished yeah I'm not sure I'd be able to tell. But, yeah, I, I, I yeah, genuinely loved it. I know, I, I, you know, is this a spoiler? At one point there is a, a sequence shot at Wembley. I don't think that's a spoiler to say. And obviously they go to Wembley to do bits of that as well. But, yes, I thought this was, this was, this was fun on multiple levels. And also it was Ted Lasso and it is amazing. So that was good. So that's what I've been watching this week. I've also been pressing on with Friday Night Lights. I've probably watched another handful of episodes since last we gathered together. And I have a question for you, and it is this. One thing that's stuck in my mind from watching Friday Night Lights is that Taylor Kitsch is almost preternaturally handsome. As in, the, the man is so good-looking, it's almost just disgusting. And, like, the amount of people on dating apps who, like, what are you looking for? They put Tim Riggins on there. Because it seems like he was the thirst trap of that era. How is Taylor Kitsch not more famous than he is? How is he not, like, a massive, massive star? Because not only is he stupidly handsome, he's also fucking brilliant in Friday Night Lights. Obviously not so much Can in I, Battleship, but... Are you... Isn't it weird that you ask... Yeah, exactly. We're, yeah, Terry and I are both like, you know what the question is, and you're, and you're dealing with this now as if we're not talking about this in about two okay. minutes' time. 
to be fair, to be fair, okay, th- this is the thing. So this this was my thought, and actually the question, the listener question, and spoiler, I'm the listener, the question is spun off oh. from this thought. So it's my question that I'm posing to you. Oh, in our, but, I see. At the moment, we're just talking about Taylor Kitsch. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So this week's listener question is from James Dyer. It is, yes. I mean, James, of course. James Dyer planted a, a listener question uh-huh. so that he could make a point in a different segment. Well, no, not quite. No, I was going to make this point anyway, and then I decided to make it the listener question as well to broaden it out. <laughs> no? But I'm serious. Oh, like, he should have been massive. And, you know, obviously he's been a few things. He was in that Waco thing. Uh, he's in True Detective. And he was, oh, he was going to be Gambit, well, he kind of was, but he was going to be Gambit properly for a long time in his own movie, and that never really happened. But, you know, I'm just saying, you know, wherefore art thou Tim Riggins? Do you want a segue or? <laughs> no, no, not really. I mean, no, that's we're um, in it now. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, there's a way of right, extricating right, it. Fine, fine. But let's an answer go. to I'm go, I've got an answer to that question because I can't. I know what you mean. But he was in his big film break. I would say was Battleship. Remember that fucking yes. shitty, massively <laughs> yes, massive budget film. And he was kind of the lead of that. He was the young, hunky yeah. military guy lead. And he must have thought, "This is my huge, big. This is going to be a massive phenomenon. This movie, um, you know, it's going to make me." Huge. And it was terrible. And mm. and I think pretty much a flop as well. So I think that kind of film. From a, from a TV actor getting into a film that doesn't work often ends up with their career really harming their career, I think. I wonder if it wasn't so much Battleship as it was John Carter, which came out the same year. Because remember John Carter was like this big sci-fi temple yeah. movie. It cost an absolute fortune and it died on its ass. But was he the and lead wonder, of John Carter? He was, yeah. He was, was John he? Carter. Oh, oh you're <laughs> I mean, right. It's literally oh, a film called John Carter. <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right. In that case, fuck that. Yeah. It's totally John Carter as well. Two big budget flops. Yeah. I mean, you could probably get away with one, but yeah, two. John Carter obviously is. A, it was a famous flop in terms of just the sheer amount of money that was wasted on that movie. Yeah, uh, he was very good in Lone Survivor. I don't know if you saw Lone Survivor, uh, which was a kind of like a, <laughs> essentially a war film directed by Peter Berg, which had Mark Wahlberg in it. But he was he was he was good in that. Yeah, I've got a lot of time for him. Maybe it was. Maybe it was that. Maybe that was the career killer, John Carter of Mars. Shame. That's he was also in the. He was also in the fated second series of True Detective, in which he was also he, he was, was really good. Yeah, in, that was unfortunate too. Which was which was an unfortunate kind of mess that was an absolute mess but his I thought his strand actually was one of the most interesting of the whole thing mm. well that is a sneak preview of the listener <laughs> question but before we get into this week's listener question I have an update from Twist and Shout on last week's first date deal breakers and Twist and Shout says she said to me she sent me a message saying I didn't go on a second date among his offences he spent quite a while extolling the virtues of a show we have here called American Ninja Warrior she says fine that is me being a snob And then he said he never watched The Good Place because he doesn't enjoy shows with female protagonists. And apparently that second one was the deal breaker. And she said it felt, uh, she felt it was emblematic of larger compatibility issues. Surely Terry would agree, she says. I mean, duh. Hang on. He didn't like anything with female protagonists in. One can only assume. Then, yeah, he's a misogynist. He's an insult misogynist, yes. You dodged a fucking bullet. Like, he would have probably buried you alive at some point in the Mm. woods. Do either of you ever browse the Am I the Arsehole subreddit? No. See, Terry, I feel like you of all people would A, enjoy, you see, you're clearly, A, you're, you're someone who would never go on Reddit. But if you did go on Reddit, I think the slash relationship subreddit and the slash am I the arsehole subreddit you would love because they are a font of never-ending entertainment. People retweet this stuff on Twitter all the time, but it's brilliant. I've seen them when they end up on Twitter. Yeah. 
But there's one this week about a relationship that was destroyed by Black Widow. So uh, oh, <laughs> there was, a, there was a, a woman on there. I can't remember the ages on there, but she said she was having the MCU mansplain to her by a partner who said she couldn't possibly appreciate Black Widow as she hadn't seen all the other films, which already is bellendry. But when she said she, in fact, had seen most of the other films, he told her that she might have watched them, but she hadn't seen them <laughs> and ultimately this turned into a whole big fucking thing and she broke up with him and is moving out ending their two-year relationship and rightly so christ yeah and that and that sounds like a guy who has probably had other questionable opinions like that because uh-huh. how do you move in with somebody and that's the first time he shows that side of himself but I'm kind of shocked at your outrage, James, because <laughs> it entirely sounds like something you yeah. would say. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I is there a sub that? Is there, is there a subreddit of things James Dyer said? <laughs> come on, come on, James. Are First you of all, James Mansplainer Dyer. <laughs> You would not never patronise. I mean, to be fair to you, we've always said this about you. Your splaining is for all genders. Yes. So James does not discriminate. He would not in any way look down yeah. on you because you're a woman. He would look down on you because you're a person who's not him. <laughs> all of this is fair. <laughs> so yes. Yeah. You, but your split that is something you would say to people. I can imagine. Not oh, necessarily. 100%. I mean, women, I have but... I have pontificated on Dune in the office multiple times because none of you can truly understand it unless you've read the book multiple times like myself so uh yes i <laughs> i do see what you're saying i'm not entirely without self-awareness so let's move on uh this week of course <laughs> as you've already heard i love how quickly you proved my point i yeah. said that but all you people who haven't read the 78 <laughs> volumes of june none of you can understand the mastery like i can't i mean yeah that's we're blue wobbly we're blue wobbly <laughs> <laughs> Well, on this week's Pilot TV Dating Advice segment, uh, we're going to ask the question inspired by my Friday Night Lights watching, who, like Taylor Kitsch, do you think should have been a far bigger star than they ultimately became? Well, there's one answer to this question. And I was actually talking to some people on Twitter about this a couple of weeks ago. So the guy liner, um, who is a writer called Justin, he was basically talking about... Can any of us still believe that Daniela Nardini, i.e. Anna from This Life, didn't become the world's biggest megastar? We were were ruminating on why, what could that have possibly been about? Obviously, at that point, you know, I'm sure there weren't a, a raft of amazing opportunities for women, especially a woman like her. And I think, and somebody said, oh, she'd actually given an interview where she said, basically, she just kept getting offered kind of not as good versions of Anna over and over and over again, which I can fully understand. But she's like, she's just so magnetic and compelling and like interesting. And I mean, I don't, I still don't understand it. Even if she was being offered all that shit stuff, she's, you you watch this life and I mean, it's her. It's, it's, the show is utterly a vehicle for her and it's still the biggest confusing injustice in our industry and will remain so until we all die. She was in the fades. She was in the fades. She was in the fades. I'm not saying she wasn't in anything again. I'm saying she could have been one of the biggest stars in the world. 
I, I had exactly the same answer, Frank, of course, yeah. That, that is literally the answer to this question. But do you know what? I was listening to Quentin Tarantino on a podcast this week, and he goes on for about four hours. He's going on for about four hours. Of course he does. And I absolutely love him because he's so, I think he's so insightful about like pretty much everything in TV and film. His love of TV, by the way, is one of the great things. He, what, you get him talking about fucking TV shows. I mean, you see it in Once More Time in Hollywood, of course, because it's about people who work in TV, really. But he talks about how he's obsessed with with actors from the 70s, 60s, 70s, who didn't make it as big as you think. And he talks about how if an actor arrives in a role very early on in the career, almost like their debut role, and it's so brilliantly written and so indelible and people love that character so much and the person performing that character is so perfectly cast and brilliant at it, as in Anna and Daniela Nardini, this life, it almost it's almost impossible to come back from that. And he talks. Mm. He gave off loads of examples of it, and it's like it's almost if it's it's the it's peaking too early element of it in a way. But mm. she that whole thing personifies that, and, and exactly what you said. Because I've read interviews where she where she said you have to decide, and he talks about this. You have to decide. You, you then get offered every role you get offered is is, is that role but not quite as good. So you then have to decide, do you accept those roles? And your agent's going, no, it's too similar, you don't want to be typecast, and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's much more common in TV, I think, than films, because in films, movie stars do get typecast. Movie stars, loads of movie stars, all the great movie stars initially play themselves doing the same fucking thing over and over, and no one cares. But somehow in TV, I think it's different. And I don't think, she, and she has been in quite a lot of stuff, if you, if you look at her, if you look at it. But she absolutely faced that issue of, she was perfect, the scripts were incredible, the show was brilliant, the dialogue, the, the, everything. And there was nothing as good as that. And it was just, yeah, kind of not as good versions. And so she had to do some various roles that were completely different and they were fine. But that, I think that's what happened. <laughs> that is what happened. Mm. I know what you mean, actually, because, I mean, if you look at someone like Patrick Stewart, like Patrick Stewart, obviously Next Generation came out in, what, 87? And he was obviously massive in that, but he had no career outside of Star Trek at all. And he did loads of sort of like straight to video shit stuff. Right. And yeah. it wasn't honestly until he got X-Men in 2000 as Professor X that he got a film career as well. And, you know, frankly, if it hadn't been for that, who knows what would happen? Maybe he'd have gone back to theatre. And I just think exactly as you're saying that he was so synonymous with Jean-Luc Picard. It almost took him taking on another character for him to become synonymous with that they were like, oh, actually, look, he can play these two characters and completely embody them. Maybe he can do other things. Um, but yeah, it is difficult. And I think it's more of a problem with TV than it is for film because over long-form content, they get imprinted in your psyche yeah. so much yeah. in a way that maybe they don't do in a film that you just can't separate the fantasy from the reality. Yeah, she was in like 29 whatever episodes of this life, you know, over two yeah. series. And people are, and you know, that people are in... Two of which just, I saw. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You have to rewatch this life at some point. Let's, so let's, it let's, has been on my list watch, for a long even time. Watch, start watching well, this I saw this the first up. one and didn't love it and then watched the second one and still didn't love it and then kind of gave up. But maybe I, I, it's been on my list. Oh yeah, because they're all bell ends, aren't they? Oh god, forget a it. Bit, yeah. Give it up. A little bit. They are bell ends. It's true. I'm sure. I'm surprised, Terry. There were no sort of Buffy type people you were thinking. So like James Masters, Julie Benz, people like that. I was like James Masters was really really good in Buffy. I always thought he'd have more of a career, and yet that never really happened. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I, I hate to say this, that he's the world's finest. Actor, like let's be let's be honest. <laughs> That's a great English think, accent, though. <laughs> I mean, is it though? And often it, it's the passage of time changes things. So I think about especially people in those kind of shows. So I was thinking about Joshua Jackson, right, as Pacey Witter, and for an entire generation of people, women, he was Pacey Witter and would only ever be Pacey Witcher. And if you look at his career, like he had the odd thing like Bobby, and it, but it took a couple of decades for him to start getting actual 
significant global roles and you know the affair really changed everything for him and now he's kind of having probably the career he should have had all along but you see these stretches and I think it's really interesting when it's when not kids tv but but you know they we watch them grow up on screen and I think it's kind of like what we're saying about um the Daniela Nardini thing is is I found it impossible to see Joshua Jackson as anybody but Pacey Witter when he used to come on the telly during the affair, I would shout Pacey Witter at the telly. And I'm sure that's the biggest bane of his life ever. The biggest bane of their life ever is you become completely attached to that person. Like, think about, like, I think about Jennifer Aniston, right? And I've talked before about how kind of, like, Jennifer Aniston's career, I just, it breaks my heart for her because she's made tons of money and she's been in movies. But I think she was never kind of given the roles and the respect that she deserved because she was Rachel Green from Friends. And actually, just not dissimilar to Joshua Jackson, I feel like The Morning Show changed everything mm. for her. Compl- was the first time I feel like she's she's moved on from being Rachel Green in Friends. And that's because that's still beamed into our homes. I've said this about Friends before, but you turn on the telly and Friends is on and there's Jennifer Aniston at 27 being Rachel Green over and over and over again. I must have watched her be Rachel Green for probably a good two and a half years of my own life. So, like, of course it's hard to see her as as somebody else. So I think TV is also the place for reinvention and for a kind of maybe a slower um, career trajectory because I think it's not kind of a coincidence that... It was the affair for Joshua Jackson. It's the morning show for Jennifer Aniston. I think it's it's just like there's a difference between TV and film in terms of people being typecast. I also think it gives people the opportunity to kind of come back or be reinvented or be something different or do something different or become much more famous two decades on. Mm. Yeah, because Jennifer Aniston was offered a series, well, was in a series of mostly mediocre romantic comedies, and she wasn't being offered the kind of role that Meryl Streep's going to get offered because of the way she was just as being, yeah, being in France. So actually, all the, the more the more kind of slightly more serious and interesting films she did, she did some really really good films that were slightly less mainstream. Good girl. Yeah, right. It, apart from those fucking mainstream comedies that she, that she ended up doing. But if, by the way, she, she was always really good at She was always like the best thing about most of those yeah. films anyway. Mm. But I was, there's also James Van Der Beek. Now, I know he's no yes, pacing, he was on right? my list. But I mean, mm. even more like, what the fuck did he do? He was in like one or two maybe <laughs> terrible films, you know. And some, like the old TV thing. He did a few TV things. But oh my God, he was, he was, he was, do- because that character was kind of like the boring mate of Pacey. You know, it was even worse, I think, for him. I mean, he was the lead. Let's not yeah, lie about it. I know. It wasn't he was called the, Pacey's Creek. I know, but it, well, it was one of those things though, where the, where Pacey is by far the more interesting character than the fucking lead, wasn't he? It's the Gavin and Stacey yeah. effect. I'm telling you, it's the Gavin and Stacey, which is you can call your show Dawson's Creek all, all you fucking like. It don't make us like Dawson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know the other one, Skeet Ulrich. He's another one. I thought after mm. Scream he was going to be big. Do you remember Jericho? He was a star in Jericho yeah. TV show, which I rather enjoyed, but again, kind of petered out. And the other one I would say is Linda Cardellini, who I think is really, really good. And again, she's been in a lot of things, but not tend to be doesn't tend to headline them. And I do think she'd be a lot more famous than ultimately she is. Yeah. I mean, there's loads. Rhea Seahorn, Rhea Seahorn, whichever you pronounce it, who mm. is, um, you know, Bellicle the, the Bellicle Saw, female lead, Kim Waxner and Bellicle Saw opposite Bob Odenkirk. It, she is 
one her performance in that role across what five six seasons now is one mm-hmm. of the great TV characters, one of the great TV performances, and she hasn't done a lot else as far as I can make out. You know, she she has a career, a kind of decent career in American sitcoms and stuff like that. But if any, she should be in massive films. She should be in you know any kind of huge big dramas like Oscar bait dramas, and maybe she will end up that way. But I mean, since she hasn't even got many awards for for her role in um, Better Call Saul, which is a disgrace, I'll be interested to see what happens to her. But she strikes me as being a classic, perfect, mm. brilliant performance as a great character, and she's not going to get... I, don't, I think it's going to be a challenge to see whether she gets cast in a lot of other stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. Right, I think we have uh, answered your question, James. Yes, you have. Well done. Uh, if you, like me, have a question for the Pilot TV podcast, do feel free to send in via DM to at Pilot TV pod on Twitter. Shall we move on then to this week's news? And I've got to be honest, in my notes for news this week, it just says WINKS in capital letters and an exclamation mark, and that is the only thing there. And yet, we've already talked about it, there's not much more to say. So, has anyone else seen anything? I mean, it's been three days... Okay, it's A, it's been three days since we did the large podcast, and also it's nearly a week until this goes out, so none of this will be even remotely news by the time we actually go out there. All of that said, what's news? (laughs) I want to mention, and I can't remember if it's happened in the last three days, but we definitely haven't spoken about it, which is there was a leaked page of the Sex and the City script, which the, a picture of a script page somehow ended up on the internet. Presumably somebody on set leaked it. And it shows something shocking, guys, 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 which is Carrie and Big are divorced or are Ooh. getting divorced which I'm just, like, fucking furious about, quite frankly. So we knew, so Aiden's back, um, which obviously suggests that, you know, not all is well, or at least she's still in touch with her ex, who everybody who saw the dreadful Sex in the City 2 will know that she huh. got off with him, even though he had a wife and kids. But anyway, that's by the by. But this page says that basically she's divorcing him or he's basically going to have to support her like he supports his other ex-wives. I mean, look, I didn't go through however many seasons of Sex and the City on telly, which ended with them getting together finally in Paris and him telling her she's the one, which is what she waited fucking 15 years to hear. Carrie in Paris. Carrie in Paris, part une and part deux. Um, I did not go through all that. And do you know what? We should have just left it there because then you've got the first film where the fucking marriage gets fucked up and, you know, and then they finally have sorted out the second film where she gets off with her ex-boyfriend and he ends up buying her a black diamond to convince her not to cheat on him again. And with each kind of instalment, their relationship, which ended on such a brilliant note in the TV show, has become a little bit more twisted and and difficult. And I know that's what happens in real life and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. I invested all of this time in Sex and the City. The entire narrative was that as much as she tried to find love with other people, it was always about big. I do not want that now shitting on from a great height by your new TV show, which has decided now to fucking split them up again. What was the entire thing for? What did I give up all my time to watch it for? You're completely destroying it. So just, I'm not just happy to, about him. You know, not exactly play devil's advocate, but aren't they both just the worst? Well, so here's the thing. I might have mentioned this before. As a young woman, as a 20, 21-year-old woman watching Sex and the City, I was like, big is the worst. He won't commit to a... <laughs> All she wants to do is meet his mom and turns up at church to try and meet her by surprise. All she wants is to hear she's the one after they've been dating six months. All she wants is to meet his ex-wife so she pretends to write a fake children's book to turn up and meet his wife like a stalker. 
And as I become a, a older and hopefully more sane human being, I've been like, she's the fucking worst. She's the worst. She is the worst. Oh, I'm sorry he wouldn't like pledge his undying love to you when you were still dating after a few months. I'm sorry he's upset that you sprang a surprise meeting on his mother. I'm sorry you stalked his ex-wife. You then had an affair with him when he was married to somebody else and you were going out with somebody else. Like, believe me, they are both kind of questionably... Well, they're both dicks, basically. But... Let me just say that, like, all of my sympathy has been replaced because she's dreadful. <laughs> wow, you're really selling this show to me. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sure we'll be reviewing this on this show. But isn't the other Christ. funny thing about isn't the other funny thing about this series that was revealed, and whether it was this week or pre- recently, was that she's going to have a podcast in the show. Karen's going to have a podcast. So that was the other yeah. thing that script page revealed. Is she said she says something like. Oh, you know, things are going okay. I've got this, I've got this, and I've got a podcast. Like, of course you oh fucking my god. Have. Yeah. Oh my god. What uh. and what? And she's now making loads of money off that. Like, she made her loads of money. She made enough money to rent a one bedroom <laughs> apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan by writing one column a week for a tabloid newspaper and doing nothing else. Give me a break. And what is what is she making out of podcasts? I'm not saying that we don't make any money out of this podcast, but we don't make any fucking money out of this podcast. <laughs> what is she going to be making like 10 grand a month out of her shite podcast? <laughs> Are you leaving this podcast to join Carrie's podcast? Is that what's happening, Terry? Yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. You'll yeah. you'll hear from me again. It'll be yeah. me and Carrie Bradshaw. It'll be me shouting at Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, frankly, I would absolutely listen to that. Oh, I think yeah. you would make it happen. Yeah, would listen. Uh, so, yeah. Boyd, you mentioned the Witcher thing. You were, of course, referring to the Witcher colon Nightmare of the Wolf, which I would talk about in painful detail, but I can't because it is not a one-off TV streaming drama event. It's a fucking film on Netflix and therefore outside the bounds of this podcast. Uh, but yes, there was footage from it and it's Young Vesemir and it looks good, but it is animated. Oh. Well, I mean, that's a shame because I was I was going to break all the rules because considering Empire Podcast does this all the fucking time, I was going to talk about Michaela Cole being cast in Wakanda Forever because as far as I'm concerned... I thought you would. By all means, go for it. Yeah, that's a TV story. Michaela Cole is a TV acting and producing and directing and creating legend and she's going to be in this massive film and it's very exciting and that is brilliant and we should be allowed to mention it on this podcast. Well, I just have, so, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yes, you're right. Do we, we don't know who she's playing though, do we? No, I, mean, I, accept, I expect exciting speculation about that in the Empire uh, Film Podcast. Yeah, well, I have to go and record that literally the second oh, okay. we finish this one. In fact, I'm going to be late for it because oh, we're recording this good. one. Good. But uh, they're going to start without me and I'm just going to parachute in as soon as we're finished. So any other news that's happened in the last, you know, two uh, days other than was- Fate the Wink Saga? They released the Sex Education uh, trailer. Did you see that? They did, an infomercial. Yes. Yes, it was it was really good, and I forgot because um, just you know until we see it, you kind of forget what's happening in education, sex education. But one of the most exciting things that's happening is that the new head of the school is being played by Jemima Kirk off yes. Girls, and that is and just 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 glimpse her in it is very exciting, and I think that's a brilliant mm. uh, move. What a great bit of casting. Yeah, she looks really, really good in it. I think I'm going to enjoy this enormously. I mean, there wasn't, you know, enough of it. And frankly, I want it now and not in September. But other than that, yes. Yeah. Although I mean, it's nice to see that Mr. Groff is still going to be in the periphery. I would have been sad if he'd been gone completely. Yeah. So that's all good. And Jason Isaacs in it. Is, is and Jason Isaacs, yes. Jason Isaacs will be in it too. 
I'm assuming that's pretty much all the news. And let's be honest, since this show doesn't go out now for about another four days, like there's absolutely no chance this is going to be current, so let's not pretend that this is in any way a news segment. Let's rather move on to reviews. And we begin this week with the latest instalment in the procedural franchise that seems destined to outlive us all, Law & Order Organised Crime. Now, I could introduce this and try to give it some context, but it's fucking Law & Order... And it's about organised crime. What more do you want from me? In fact, I would say far better, in fact, to let world-renowned law and order stand Terry White hunt down the evidence, put it on trial, and leave you with a satisfying sense of closure. Terry, is this show enough to keep Dick Wolf from the door? Uh, very good very good well we won't get a resolution because this is a slightly different kettle of fish for many reasons now what i am going to say is that the current season season 22 of law and order svu is currently playing on sky witness and if you are like me then we have just had episode seven episode eight goes out tomorrow episode nine goes out on friday the 30th of july Episode nine is the return of Elliot Stabler. So what's going to happen is that will air first and then that will lead straight into Law and Order Organised Crime because this is the way the Law and Order multiverse works, which is that each show essentially is a jumping off platform for whatever the new show is. But this is something brand new because... I'm going to give you a little bit rundown on who Elliot Stabler is because it's oh, very please hard. Do. Yes, I'm going to I'm going to Terry explain <laughs> Elliot Stabler and SVU to you. But what I am not going to do because believe me, having watched this first episode before I've seen the episode of SVU where he returns has pretty much ruined my fucking day, week, and life <laughs> because I've had there's a there's a um, essentially a catching up bit at the beginning, which basically was me seeing Elliot and Olivia reunited for the first time in 12 years and I had to see it in a bit of fucking catch-up footage. So, but what I'm not going to do, so I'm not going to tell you the specifics of what happens in Law and Order in that episode because that would be a massive spoiler and as a massive Law and Order SVU fan, that would fuck me right off. So I'm going to respect you fellow SVU fans that are almost certainly listening to this podcast. So, Elliot Stabler was Olivia Benson's partner. Olivia Benson is now the captain of SVU. She was a detective for many years. She's... <laughs> Stop laughing at me. What's he laughing at? This just, is vital context. I swear to God, this is how you guys must feel every time I open yes. my mouth. But carry uh -huh. on. <laughs> uh -huh. So, they were incredible partners. So, Liv was the kind of the heart and the care for the victims and the empathy Stabler was the rage. So the rage of how can society let these things happen? Like, why do the perps always get away from, from it, from, with it? And so together they represented kind of how we all feel about these kind of injustices in the world. And they were very much yin and yang and they worked together perfectly because of that. And, you know, everybody speculated on whether they should actually get together. There was never actually any romance. There was never like a kiss or anything like that. He did kiss Danny Beck, though, his partner from when Olivia left briefly but we don't talk about that because we don't like Danny Beck because she was a very poor replacement for Olivia she only lasted once like less than one season anyway they were the best partnership going Laura and Audrey SVU was a huge success 
then they had a very tricky contract and salary negotiation, which meant that Christopher Maloney, who plays Stabler, left the show, but in between seasons. So there was a shooting at the end of one season and that was the ending on the cliffhanger. The next season picks up and he's just not there. So as a Law and Order fan, there's no closure because he resigns essentially off screen. They say he can't wow. cope with the tragedy of what he's done. Wow. He's not coming back. Liv, Liv, pack up his desk. Cragen, Captain Cragen, the old captain, who left to go on a cruise, he made Liv pack up Stabler's desk. Like, how brutal is that? But she never saw him again. There's um, a moment in the episode where she's trying to call his cell phone. He doesn't answer. And for 12 years, they don't speak. They never see each other. He just cuts her off. And you don't know where he is, what's happening. All of those things are answered between SVU and organised crime. So how is he brought back? He's in New York. I'm not going to tell you any more of that, but I am going to say he's been living in Italy And he's in New York and his family are caught up in a bomb. And the consequences of that is what leads to organised crime. But having seen the moment that Benson and Stabler see each other again for the first time as part of the fucking montage catch up, my heart almost stopped, quite honestly. Now let's get to organised crime, the actual show. So, James, I mean, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on both the credits and the theme tune, because James's big objection, if we all remember, there you go, was that it was very dated, opening credits, very dated um, theme tune. This has a snazzy... Updated. It's a bit like when Doctor Who gets an updated mm. theme tune. Just, they've just added a little bit of mafioso spice to the credit sequence. <laughs> a little <laughs> Italian vibe to it all. But it deviates as not the kind of, you know, detectives with with in grayscale with the fucking Brooklyn Bridge behind them. It's kind of done quite dynamically. And there is a dip, like, let's get to actually the, the show in question. It does have a different feel about it. That is partly because... It has to ditch the case of the week procedural element of it because this is about the consequences on Staber's family and his kind of fight for justice, and that consumes the first episode. So there is no case and resolution in this because but he that's is not the, the show, case. is it? Presumably, that's just this is just like the introductory couple of episodes, and then it'll go into a procedural format. No, it's an ongoing story. Is it? Yeah. 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 So it's not like so. Wow. Th- and this is a massive deviation. This is a massive deviation. And I, I mean, I don't know. I think it's pacey and propulsive. It's kind of, it reminded me a bit of Bourne, right? That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> is it reminded me a bit no! of Bourne. It did, all the running and the good, like, there is a dynamism. There's dynamism to the thriller and action elements that you don't often get in, in Law and Order. It's less of the kind of, we've talked about that before, you've got three characters in a room and they do a a one-shot, they never break, and they basically have the whole thing with dialogue. There's actually much less dialogue in this, there's more action. It does centre around, you know, Stabler is the case in in that respect, and so it brings in all the personal stuff. If you are an SVU fan... It's like Easter eggs everywhere because there's there's his, ki- his five kids, there's his Catholicism, all these things that you know from, from following this man for 20 years, they're all sprinkled in there. Because um, obviously Dick Wolf, this is Dick Wolf, it's all Dick Wolf. So I personally think it is interesting and fresh and exciting enough to feel like its own thing. I don't even mind that they've ditched the whole 
case of the week thing because I fucking love Stabler with every breath in my body and the tension between him and Liv is incredible and I just think it's like gives the franchise a whole new slightly different vibe yes it's basically the mafia meets SVU but that's like basically the best thing in the world like what is wrong with that that's incredible that is literally like Goodfellas meets SVU I have questions my, my my first question, I think you've kind of answered, which was what the fuck is going on. I now know more than I ever wanted to know about Law & Order. So thank you very much for that, because I had no clue who these people were or why I should care. Because the what's previously on Law & Order was just a sequence of just images. I was like, this is like someone's weird fever dream. This has given me no narrative background to this whatsoever. I don't know who these people are, but sure, carry on. My question is, it's like, and I said this when we watched SVU, that this feels like TV from another era. And part of that, I just think, is down to the presentation and the acting. Like, it's it's incredible incredibly overacted and it's like they discover a bit of a, a bit of uh, a bit of sort of evidence and he leans over the incredibly attractive tech girl on the computer in a frankly slightly me too way i got to be honest he was very close to her and he leans over her and then you know it's important evidence because drama music starts playing like dun, 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 dun. oh good we should pay attention to this like there is this is, this is about a subtler's being beaten to death with a mallet. Yeah. And I kind of think, you know, when you watch CSI or Criminal Minds or Law and & Order and all this procedural shit, do you know what I mean? You're used to that stuff because that's just what it is. And that's what it has been for the, like the past two decades because they haven't updated the formula. But I kind of feel like when they're now straying into the kind of, and I hate the term, but the, the kind of peak TV serialized ongoing drama thing, I just feel it, it emphasizes the stupidity of all of this because you just got kind of shit procedural overacting, but in an actual ongoing story. It's like, yes, I could be watching this or I could watch fucking Mayor of Easttown. Do you know what I mean? This is like, it just feels, I don't know, this this kind of hit home for me why I don't like this stuff. And I like ongoing story. That's what I'm here for. That That's my thing. Like ongoing story, I hate procedurals because I don't like that one and done thing. But this makes me realise that even if it isn't one and done, I just don't like this type of television. I mean, it doesn't help that I don't know who anyone is, but still, didn't love this at all. I think you're completely wrong. I think you're, you shock me. <laughs> well, I, but I'm not. You know, I'm not a big particular Law and Order SVU um, fan. You know, I, I watch it every now and then. I always enjoy it when I do, and I don't mind procedures at all because I'm not some kind of rabid TV snob. Um, but <laughs> but what I was surprised about by this series was the production values, and and actually the way it's shot, lit. Directed um, and associates the action scenes. There, it's really good. It by, and noticeably, because I did watch, I actually rewatched a recent episode of Law and Order as for you to check, because that hasn't particularly moved on in terms of production values at all. And yet it's still a kind of lovable, highly entertaining show. But this is something different. I do, I genuinely think they've upped the game. And I think it's because it is an overarching story, a long, a long form story, which is going to take place over quite a few episodes. I think logically they've decided that they have to kind of up their game production wise. So I think it looked, you know, there were the scenes shot in the snow where the snow's slowly falling down and the two of them are having like meaningful looks at each other, which were really beautifully done. I'm sorry, they were. You're wrong. You're, you're bias. Your bias, listen to this, your bias against this sort of stuff has, has now stopped you from looking, seeing this show and how well done it is because it's really well done. I just don't agree with you. I, think I like that they wrong. got Chaz Palmentary. I like that they got Dylan McDermott. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, and Dylan McDermott. Three extremely large Afghan hounds. 
Oh my God, the dogs are incredible. The massive fucking horse dogs are incredible. But yeah, that's really interesting casting because I thought Dylan McDermott is, is, is kind of slightly odd casting to play this yeah, like mafia, is. mafia he boss. And, but it's fascinating. But I think that's what Dick Wolf does really well. He often casts unusual, interesting people in, 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 in roles that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Chas Palminteri, I mean, has he ever had a role in anything that's not a mafia related? I, I mean, was thinking that. 100%. And sure he is back. But you know, kind of great to see him back bouncing off. He's the father and has got this father and something going on I thought it was great and by the way I thought the you know the way it uses what we haven't mentioned is the storyline touches upon PPE in the world of the of COVID and they and this COVID totally COVID related in terms of you know he's walking along with his fucking mask on and taking his mask and I and and you haven't and oddly and I think Dick Wolf is so confident in what he's doing I thought it's really interesting because hardly any TV has actually like in terms of shot over the last 18 months has done that has taken that decision to to embrace the fact that this takes place in the post-COVID world with masks and all that because it's too difficult, isn't it? Really, it's quite hard to like go, am I going to have my handsome, legendary hero of the show having to wear a fucking mask? All the-? Well, yeah, he kind of does. You know, like takes it off a bit, but he also does wear it sometimes. And I thought that was great. And to have a storyline touching upon PPE, fraudulent PPE, you know, acquisition, <laughs> as he's so clever at using he- the headlines in-, in his shows. He's always done that. And I thought that was a classic example of it. So I thought it was absolutely great, I have to say. Well, I think we can all agree that I am not the authority on this. Uh, if you enjoy your law and order, I'm sure you will enjoy this. Uh, but I did not. Having said that, it is on Sky Witness and now TV, not now, now, now TV, not now, that thing. Uh, Friday, June 30th at 10pm. Next up this week, we have Jerk. This is series two of Tin Renkow's comedy about a man with cerebral palsy who exploits his disability to go around acting like a monumental bellend. This is, ostensibly, a comedy, uh, and it resoundingly fails my bellend test, but Boyd, tell me, did Jerk do it for you? I mean, I watched this. I, I watched the, So there was, this is the second series of this show, and um, mm. the, the first series went out. I think 2019 on BBC Three, and uh, I quite enjoyed it then. I thought it was a very bold, but I accuse the word bold every week. Apologies. It is bold though. It's a bold way of dealing with this um, storyline. And Tim Renko created it, co-created the, the whole thing. And, he, and, and to have the idea that he, you know, in real life he's got cerebral palsy and he's used the condition to milk it to all kinds of comedic effect. Like there's slapstick, repeated shots. There's one kind of montage, which is half of the montage is him just falling over or falling downstairs because of his disability. And because, you know, he owns it basically. And he, he is, he, this show reflects all the different ways that his disability affects him and affects his friends and strangers. But it also is in its own right, I think, a really kind of darkly comic, quite edgy piece of work. And it is summed up by the fact that, as you alluded to, I think, in your introduction, there is what... So he... He has been told, you know, he could, he could easily get hold of hard drugs like cocaine if he wants to, using his his condition, which he does. And there's this kind of character. So a lot of it is set in college, a university, and there's this character of this kind of um, this woman who's a right on, fully right on, identity politics obsessive. I'm not. Gonna, I'm trying to avoid the W words. In fact, yes, I, I, can, I can hear. I can hear. Yeah, you I'm doing really desperately somersaults to avoid so saying I'm, woke. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not saying it. I'm just not saying. It. I'm refusing. Um, and I thought actually her character was really funny in kind of encapsulating all of that stuff. And she, that she has a sidekick because she keeps speaking for her, doesn't let speak, and yet she talks about how she, she has to have her own voice and she never lets her speak and she's, she's, she stands there next to her, apart from at the end of this episode. And she decides that what she has to do is to try and get hold of some cocaine for Tim's character, who's also called Tim. And it does end up in a scene, I have to say, a party where they're helping this disabled guy 
with the snorting of the cocaine because he's said when he got, it's difficult for him and he ends up snorting and it also works by the way as a tribute to the classic scene in Annie Hall in which um, Woody Allen's character sneezes into the cocaine and it all puffs up into the air and it's hilarious and it's so from that point of view it's an edgy show it also for merely grappling as it does with there's a character played by Sharon Rooney he's, he's like his care worker and friend and she is the kind of ballsy blunt talking character who won't take the student you know kind of W word uh, politics seriously <laughs> and she takes the piss out of all that and she's great I've always loved Sharon Rooney she's brilliant in everything she does and she's really good in this but this series to give it credit does head on kind of address the stuff like, you know, sexual politics, gender politics. I mean, there's no more controversial or exhaustingly, you know, angry political issue of our time than gender and gender critical feminists and, you know, all of that, trans issues, etc. And this show does kind of touch upon that and makes jokes about that. And I think somehow gets away with it. So I found it fascinating. I think it does reflect very interestingly, on the politics of the time, particularly the student university politics, etc., of the moment. And I think it is full of bellends, and Tim Reco's character is a massive bellend, but I think that is a refreshing thing, and I think it works very well within the context of this show. So I thought I found it fascinating. Now, I have been wrong in the past on this particular point, but I have been waiting three whole days to hear what Terry thought of this episode. Terry, please put me out of my misery. What's really interesting is I was kind of fascinated by my own response to this because there's a uncomfortableness you have with watching this guy and I was trying to work out like why I was reacting like that and do you know what the coke scene is amazing I was like obsessed with the coke scene but I also like found it excruciating and I'm like why am I finding it excruciating and it's because and I've read something that likened it to Curb and him to Larry David because he kind of the overarching point seems to me to be just because I am physically disabled doesn't mean I'm not a massive cunt at the same time. Mm. And that, that <laughs> and that's what kind of I kept what I find really fascinating about this is to as Boyd's point, like it surrounds itself with all these kind of like all these things about identity politics. She's hilarious, this student. He says to her, Oh, I identify as able bodied. Mm. And she's, like, going around telling everyone he's able-bodied, even though he clearly isn't, because that's how he chooses to identify. In a world where we, you know, we're so very conscious of ensuring that we respect people and how they identify and, and that we are are fully sensitive and tolerant and we're all on you know I think we're all very conscious of making sure that we are as tolerant and as open-minded and as inclusive and as welcoming as possible and this show kind of sends up a lot of that stuff and a lot of the stuff around when he says I identify as able-bodied it reminded me of when on GMB Piers Morgan said oh I what did he say I identify as a zebra or whatever he said something absurd and I remember him saying that and being furious and being like, who does he fucking think he is? Kind of belittling it like this. And then you see it in something like this. And I don't know, I just found it, I found it fascinating. I didn't find it funny initially. I just felt uncomfortable. And that I think is is something about me and what I'm comfortable seeing and what I'm used to seeing. And the fact that this show isn't afraid to paint him as a dick who also happens to be physically disabled and also doesn't mind using his condition to, like, be a dick as well. Like, it, it kind of subverts all of the current conversations that are happening. And it's, it's really funny in places. The coke scene is brilliant. His, so his mum, 
right? That is Lorraine Bracco, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a whole scene with his mum and I was like, hang on, the fuck is Lorraine Bracco doing in this? (laughs) And also she's amazing. She was the one who put it in his mind about doing coke. There's a whole bit where she's excited. He's like gone to to university. And she's like, have you done coke yet? You know, you need to get the really good stuff. And it's just like... It's an that is an amazing get and that yeah, is an amazing yeah. use of her. That is yeah. fucking genius. And she signs off with doing that Donald Trump star impersonation of his physical disability. So yeah. that was incredible, yeah. Yeah. She's the incredible So I, I think this is really interesting and really funny. And I think it makes us ask difficult questions about what we're comfortable seeing on screen. I think it makes us ask difficult questions about sometimes the performative nature of, of how we engage with identity politics. I think it does all of that stuff in a really unflinching and full-on way so yeah i this is not absolutely not what i was expecting and i sat for ages thinking why am i finding this so uncomfortable why is it like it, it, it as boyd says he uses his physical condition in the physical comedy why does that make things uncomfortable I, I mean, it could have been, and I'm just going to throw this out there, it might have been none of that. It might have been because he's a dick and it's not funny. I would have said those are probably the two factors most at work there. Like, you saying it's not funny. I did not smile. In fact, I wanted to hurl large objects at the screen. I found it so painfully unfunny that I just, I, oh, it made me furious. And I can never predict how you're going to react to things, Terry, but I thought you would hate it. I thought in particular you would hate the incredible kind of first base mockery of kind of woke student values, which seems like incredibly low hanging comedy fruit and it's just like really are we doing this this is so tired but i did think that's what i thought what he was sending up is there is an assumption that somebody within a group like that and the group being somebody who has a physical disability that they are automatically kind of and i'm going to use the w word and i'm using inverted commas and i know you can't see it because it's a podcast <laughs> but that they that they would be woke warriors that they would be people mm. do you know what i mean like i think he what he's sending up actually is that whole conceit and that it wasn't really about that student and all of that woke and all of that identity politics stuff. He was sending up and making you really question the role of somebody who's within a marginalised group, what we assume they think. We assume all these things about... And that's what he's sending up when he says, oh, actually, I identify as able bodies. He's sending up that people make assumptions for him because he is in a marginalised group. I'm now sounding like that student, by the way, going... You really are. Oh, our job, <laughs> our job guys, is to listen, is to... Perhaps that's why you didn't hate her, because you just felt seen when she was on the show. <laughs> I mean, look, I just... I didn't... I found that just kind of... And also, he's such a dick, and I know that's the point. I appreciate that's the point but he's also I just didn't find him funny and we all know I'm a humorless twat I'm absolutely willing to own that and maybe that is a large part of this but I found it so aggravating and as Boyd mentioned there's a montage of slapstick humor and I was like are we supposed to be finding it funny that he's disabled and falling over is that is that a is that a thing that's we're supposed to be laughing at it's like I don't know that made me feel uncomfortable I just didn't find it funny I didn't enjoy spending time with any of these people I wanted them all to die but then this is again this comes back to my bell end testing isn't it there is not a single likable person in this whole show so there's nothing for me to latch on to so I had found none of it funny I found none of it interesting and I liked precisely no one so it lived up to its title for me and I shall never watch it again speaking of things I shall never watch again. We should move on to the next show. But before we do that, boy, this is on BBC Three. It's BBC Three, BBC Three on Sunday. The whole as a box set, so it's available um, right. uh, first thing as a box set, and then they're showing on BBC One, I believe, like Monday, Tuesday uh, for a few weeks as well. But all, all the okay. whole thing's available as a box set on Sunday. 
and ignore 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 James. <laughs> it's really interesting, and it's not making fun. It's set in that world of of Wness. It has to reflect it, and it does reflect it. And it's up to you whether you think it's simplistic or anyway. Carry on. Sure. How many we finished that review. Uh, how only, many, four. How many only four. No, only I four. Think. Yeah. Thank God for that. <laughs> four episodes. Please watch them without me. Anyway, next we have King Gary. The sitcom by Tom Davis and James DeFrond, which stars Davis himself as Gary King, the self-styled big man of a crescent in London, who in this episode at least mines such comedic gold as skip misuse and personalised candles. Terry, why did I have to watch this? This, for me, is almost the entire opposite of everything Boyd just said about Jerk, in that it isn't bold and it is... I mean, I'm going to say the word that I know will be on the tip of your tongue, James, which is broad, broad <laughs> as fuck. So apparently this is season two. I didn't know there was a season one. And, oh, God, I've really struggled with this, guys. Guys, guys, guys. Guys, so, guys, guys, guys. OMG, sitcom. guys. I mean, this is showing <laughs> the people who live in the suburbs on, I think it's the Essex Riviera, boy. Is that right? They don't specify. They deliberately don't specify. Right. So it's, it's just set in any kind of suburban, you know, Suburb. world. Yeah. So I couldn't work out if they were meant to be middle class or working class. And then I read something which is, said they were meant to be working class and that's kind of the motivation for Tom Davis to to make this show which is about representing working class people in kind of a warm and and a nice way they so this is this is a minor point but it sums up everything for me which is they are obsessed with things that working class people are not obsessed with. They are obsessed with things that middle class people are obsessed with. This drove me mental. Like who's so, using your skip? So who's using your skip? The bins a cat shitting in your garden, birds coming over and, and crapping on your... Like, these are things that... Mid- so it was like a weird mixture of what I thought were meant to be working-class people obsessed with middle-class concerns. Like, I have massive bin anxiety, right? So I moved to a new house and there's a different bin schedule. There are different bins on different... I mean, not just what you put in your bin, but the days you have to take your bin out into the street and the judgment from the neighbours if you don't take your bin in on time or if you forget to take your bin out like I have massive bin anxiety did I have bin anxiety when and I know this isn't set in a council state but when I lived on a council state did I have bin anxiety did I fuck I ate from a bin right? so I don't like that is a middle class that is a middle class concern they live on butter churn crescent right which I think I'm um, just as a kind of example of where the humor kind of sits and so this for, this for me was way too broad and I kind of got the competitiveness of suburban, but again, for me, that's a massive middle-class thing, which is all that weird competitiveness over little, tiny, ridiculous parts of minutiae of the logistics of living together on the street. Let's get into the characters, I suppose. So it's Gary, who is Tom Davis, as you said. He wrote it with James Front, his kid from childhood, I believe. They did Murder in Successville. I think Tom did some stuff with Lee Francis, but some Bo Selector stuff years ago. And... His girlfriend, Terry, spelt the same way as my way, by the way, which I'm somehow taking massive offence at, played by Laura Checkley. And it's basically kind of about, not even about their relationship, about the kind of minutiae of their lives, living on this crescent, their neighbours. So I wouldn't, they're not guest stars, but other people in this cat. I mean, Simon Day is in there as Big Gary. Ramesh Ragnathan is a neighbour who's going through a divorce. Like, Camille Kaduri, i.e., 
Jackie Tyler is in it. So it's got like actually an incredible cream of British comedy in there. But I just didn't, I just didn't find it funny. And the whole, all of the little bits, I didn't find the skip bit funny. There's a whole thing which could have worked about a bad memory candle. Terry makes these candles, which you burn to get rid of bad memories. So if you want to forget about your wife, you burn this. Like, But it just doesn't work. The joke doesn't really work. The cat shitting bit didn't work. I just, like, didn't find it funny. It almost sat as a little series of vignettes. So, so something like This Country, right, that for me each episode felt like a proper episode with obviously, like, scenes within it, but it, it felt like a complete cohesive thing. This could have been, like, almost like a fast show scenario where you've got, we're going to do the skip bit, we're going to do the bin bit, then we're going to do the candle bit, we're going to do the cat shitting in the garden bit, like... It didn't hang together as an episode for me and I just didn't find it funny. And maybe it's because I don't know that kind of suburbia that exists in this country. Um, Maybe that's part of the problem and I don't recognise it at all. So some of the stuff didn't, some of the references didn't seem right to me from a class perspective. So yeah, I just found this really hard to like. I'm sorry. Don't don't apologise, but can I just say the whole point of it is that these are working-class characters who find themselves in the middle-class world. So Gary's dad, as you say, um, he is a successful kind of, you know, in the building world, and so he has this quite lavish house in, in this part of the country, and he is, be- he is snobbish himself. He tells his son... It's a, it's, it's a, this is about the class snobbery that happens when you go from being working class to living in a middle-class suburban environment. And what happens, what have you left behind? How does it change you? Does it change you? Do you stay being a working class person? How does it fit? You know, and there's there's layers and layers without putting too fine a point on it. There's there one... not layers. I mean... No, there are, I mean, honestly. Well, A, well, but A, as, a new, as somebody coming to this for the first time, I didn't get any of what you just said from the sure. show. Well, Which it can't, come with, it can't come with an explainer. Like, if, it would. I would love it if you would pop up at the beginning of every new TV show and explain what uh, the conceit is meant to be. But I do, I mean, layers. I yeah. think, do you not think that this podcast maybe approaches TV the way people approach A-level classic English literature text by just projecting lots of, like, subtext into things that maybe don't exist? Or am I just... No, this is what it's about. In this episode, his dad, Gary's dad, explicitly accuses him of being a snob. In a later episode, Gary's dad, they're in a kind of Toby Carvery, and there's a whole thing about it, and Gary's dad looks at some people on another table who are kind of piles of bowls of food, and they go, and he says, those are Channel 5 people. And it is about, I'm sorry, I, it may, I, I'm on the verge of saying, because you didn't get it, it doesn't mean, well, it's not about what it is about. And That's you may fair. say... Fair. And you That's may fair. say I didn't. It, it didn't come across to you, but I'm just saying. It, so, but the, the idea that it's not authentic because working class people don't behave like. Well, yeah, that is that, that is the fucking point. So the whole point of it is how do working class people end up in this situation? And there is a kind of so there's a constant tension between how they behave with and how they perceive their other fellow people in this close in this suburban world and how they perceive everyone with on the rungs of class of the class system in this country. It just is a thing that it's partly about. On the other hand, it's also about an only Fools and Horses style, quite broad, unashamedly broad sitcom. And it is, you know, yeah, absolutely. How can you do a kind of family-friendly-ish, very British class system sitcom, Only Fools and Horses-esque class sitcom? I think it is very different to that show. And I think they pull it off. I think they pull it off. And I, I, I absolutely love it. I love the characters. I mean, I think Tom is brilliant as Gary as this kind of lovable, confused, stressed-out guy trying to 
be loved by his community, trying to be the leader of the close, this middle-class close community. And Robert Schmaganathan is his neighbour, who clearly is middle-class, who's going through a bad time in the second suit because his wife's left him. They have this kind of love-hate relationship going on. I think the relationship between Gary, played by Tom, and his wife is fantastic. And I love Terry. And Laura Chetley is a fucking genius. She is brilliant. Her slapstick moments are incredible. Her facial expressions are fucking hilarious. I just love her. So I think so I'd take it as a massive compliment that she's called Terry. I think she's amazing. And her making of these candles that don't end up being dodgy is fantastic. I think Simon Day and Camille Kuduri as the parents are great. Camille Kuduri particularly is astonishing. There's one bit at the beginning when um, Gary's making a big speech at a funeral and she says, that's it now, Gary. She just tells him to stop. How do you not enjoy the opening, the very clever opening, where you think it's their wedding because they got engaged at the end of the last season and they're visiting other people's weddings to see how to do it? It's really funny and clever and smart. And um, I love it. I watched all six episodes. I've watched the whole fucking thing. It ends with, it builds up to their wedding. And there's a two-part, um, effectively, fifth and sixth episodes, which are all about the wedding. And that, and it gets really, really good at that point because it's a depiction of a wedding and all the stresses and strains of it. And, and it all ends up being the passive aggression or just the aggression of the mother-in-law having to, and her wishes for the wedding and the bride and her wishes for the wedding and everyone else having to grapple with it. It ends up being brilliantly, farcically kind of intense and hectic and it's great and i loved it well if there's a bright center to the universe boyd then my opinion is from yours i don't know that was a terrible star wars metaphor let's just leave that um <laughs> where are you going with that i was trying to work in a star wars metaphor i can't do it <laughs> i'm just gonna move on <laughs> i mean all i'm Give saying us some is- of your views on it though where your position is, I would say mine is just on the other side of it. And maybe it is exactly as you say, that I just don't appreciate its Chaucerian majesty, subtext <laughs> and razor insight you into the prick. strata of the social structure, <laughs> which clearly is all there. Uh, but sadly, you know, dullard that I am, all of that just went straight over my head. Uh, and all I saw was something wildly broad so immediately my snobbery was my snobbery alarm was firing at about 100 decibels uh there was a disproportionate discussion of skips followed by an entire episode revolving around skip management or what can and cannot go inside said skip that is not the stuff in my mind at least that great comedy is made of and it's a joke about sex within sight of the skip and then we get onto the candle subplot which let me tell you is pretty fucking thrilling uh there is a bit where someone says mercy book which i guess was supposed to be a funny funny joke there uh, there's also a riff on recycling bins i quite enjoyed who's recycle who's nick the recycling bins that was a nice little whodunit b plot which was very good but uh, look this this just obviously these were not necessarily the 29 most painful minutes of my life but they're certainly up there this is not my kind of show it is possible as you said that there's a lot more going on there that i didn't get but no just hard pass from me sadly the bit you referred to i that was my favorite bit where where um the, where laura checkley uh, as, as terry was offering sex to 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 gary and he's watching the skim and she's would you like me to come over there so you can still see the skim i thought that was really funny i'm sorry so yeah I this just... does perhaps define the difference in our sense of humors <laughs> i know genuinely because this is a proper terminator 2 moment for me this is an i know now why you laugh but it is something i could never do moment i just like there's there's a part of me that just doesn't understand how this fits under the umbrella of humor not oh Oh, yeah, this is funny, but I don't laugh at it. Which is like Alan Partridge, Kirby Enthusiasm. I see it's genius, I just don't find it funny. This, I, do, I like, if you if I was on a comedy hunt and you said I've hidden some comedy in this, I'd look at this show and go, nope, there's no comedy here and move on to the next one. I wouldn't be able to detect the hint of humour in this show. Can I just say in defence of myself, 
that... See, you're just being lumped in the same bin as me now and it makes you uncomfortable. I know I am. <laughs> same recycling bin. Stop between the two of you and I'm, one of you's always fucking kicking me in the face like, for being on the other side. Um, in my defence, I have no problem with broad comedy. I've enjoyed much great broad comedy and I totally didn't... And just because I didn't get the class stuff that is in there doesn't mean that isn't in there. That means I didn't get it. And I pointed out that it seems to be a very specific maybe Essex suburbia life that I have no knowledge and experience of apart from my own bin related anxiety <laughs> in West Spray at the moment but anyway so that was just all in my defense because I feel like I'm getting lumped in with James and you oh, know no 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 I'm not that no. as bad as James oh god yeah no I wasn't uh, but no no absolutely not no uh, Boyd, when is this show airing? Friday, 9.30, BBC One. I think the whole box set will be available, the whole glorious box set will be available that night as well. Watch all six, James. Watch all you six episodes it. and go online yeah. to read Boyd's dissertation on King Gary and its analysis of the British class system whenever you have the time. Ooh. You are a piece of work. <laughs> you are a piece of work. You really are. <laughs> what else is on this week, Boyd, that I didn't understand? Nothing, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Outer Banks, you're going to stand Outer Banks, surely. Uh, you yeah. liked Outer Banks. I didn't really like it that much. I mean, it's like, <laughs> uh, Outer, yeah, I don't know why you thought I liked it, yeah. I mean, it is the kind of thing that I like. It is a kind of very sub-Dawson's Creek. Like, hey, even, I like sub-Dawson's Creek. Yeah, but it's pretty uh, sub. But yeah, it's, it was, I think, yeah, it was basically beautiful young people kind of trying to find tre hunted treasure was the first season. Yeah. Um, I think they still are in the second season, but we didn't get the screens for that for Netflix, but yeah. I think it... 30th I think of July on Netflix, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything else? Or is that just about it? It's not, not been a banner week, really, for things. I wouldn't say no. I think you can see why we ended up doing shows that I knew you would hate. It wasn't deliberately... Yes. Don't think I didn't feel that. Yeah. From, um, from this Friday, from Saturday onwards, for the next 13 days, BBC One is pretty much 24-7 Olympics, apart from like one little sliver of stuff between oh. about 9 and 11, where they have some new stuff, including King Gary and Fable oh, Fake Fortune Championship. But literally... Like almost twenty four seven Olympics from um, from uh, this weekend onwards, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, do we have a pick of the week? Lauren Elder organised crime. <laughs> King Gary. I mean, <laughs> I hate myself more than I can possibly put into words, but it is definitely law and order organised crime. Yes. <laughs> my work here is done. I'm I sorry. don't think I should come back on the pilot podcast for the rest of my notice <laughs> period because it can only go down from here. <laughs> Oh, God, well, that is blessedly it for this extraordinarily painful, for me at least, episode of the Pilot TV podcast. <laughs> uh, special, not least of all, as I'm not able to edit this episode. I'm leaving that part in the hands of our capable editor, Ben Williams. And as a massive control freak, that is in no way giving me massive anxiety. But if you'd like to leave feedback, either on the podcast or Ben's editing, no pressure, Ben, uh, then do feel free to do so alongside a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can find Terry Boyd and myself all up in the interwebs at... Terry underscore White, at Boyd Hilton and at James C. Dyer. Next week will hopefully lead to me, you know, liking some things. So I have absolutely no idea what we'll be reviewing. Possibly the 400 metres. And I don't know, the triple jump. <laughs> I guess we'll see. But in the meantime, I must bid you a fond farewell because I'm at least 15 minutes late for the Empire podcast. And frankly, they're going to shout at me. So pilot out. Mm. 